Hey, church family, I'm thrilled that you would listen to our podcast this week. My goal last week was for us to look at the idea of Jesus being human enough to pray and human enough to have limits that he needed to honor, and then to have that flow into us discussing our own limits and us discussing our own need for prayer. But we spent extra time talking about the idea of limits, and because of that, this turned into a two-part message. So what you're hearing today is the second part of that, the idea of us needing to pray, or the truth and reality of us needing to pray is how I should say it. And so I hope you enjoy listening. When the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out Uh, sorry, and he cast out many demons and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Verse 35, now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I might preach there also because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all of Galilee and casting out demons. Okay, just push pause there. Last week, we discussed Jesus' humanity, talking about how he was human enough for prayer and for limits, that Jesus was human enough both for him to need to break away to pray and for him to need to function and operate within his own limits. And so we asked and kind of answered the question of, well, why would Jesus pray? And then why Jesus said no was our other question we asked and answered. Because for Jesus to say, let's go on to the next village, was for him to say then no to needs in that village. Because remember, he he encounters and interacts with and heals really the whole village of Capernaum. And by the next morning, word is spread to the surrounding communities and villages. And those people show up. And so when Jesus woke up the next morning, went off to pray, and then after praying, told the guys, we're going to leave He was, by saying, let's go, he was saying no to very real needs that people had, that they came to Jesus asking him to fix and to remedy. And so we talked about when Jesus says no. But the other question that we had hoped to get to, and we'll just cover today, and it'll just be this one, is is something that naturally leads us to, and that's the why would I pray? Listen, if it's important for Jesus to get alone to pray and be with his father, then how much more so would it be important and ought to be maybe a priority for me? And during his time, he's redirected. God gave him direction when he got alone to be with the father. And so it naturally leaves us with the question of, well, when's the last time that the father's done that for us? Where he's maybe given us direction or instruction. For you personally, when's the last time God gave you direction about someone he wanted you to talk to or something he wanted you to do or somewhere he wanted maybe you to go or something he wanted you to change even in your own life? When's the last time though maybe that we gave God opportunity to do that, to redirect us, where we got alone and were determined to be quiet and and to sit and wait to hear from him? I think introverted or extroverted, it doesn't matter. All of us need to break away from people sometimes and do what Jesus did. Whether you love being with people or it absolutely drains you to be with them, it doesn't matter. All of us need to do what Jesus did. You need to gain and renew the perspective that comes from prayer in scripture. 
which for me means I have to turn my phone off. For me, it means when I start my day, I start it with my phone either completely off or on silent set to the side so that I don't start my day by hitting my email accounts and all of the to-do lists that I've got logged there, but I have to start it by opening scripture. And then for me, a part of my rhythm is also opening a book and, and working through a book as well so that I'm in a, a disciplined habit of being a lifelong learner because I believe that's so important. But a part of that time is me getting quiet before the Lord and just talking to him, opening my heart up and, and sharing with him what's on my heart and asking him to address my anxieties or my hurts or my disappointments or my needs. So we're going to talk for a few minutes about the idea of prayer because I think it's such an amazing gift and privilege that God gives us that I think for us, sometimes we just overlook it or we, we underutilize it. Now, I'll just tell you this. Don't worry. I've heard enough messages where people just beat me up about not praying enough, and that's not my goal today. I don't want you leaving here feeling beat up or like a failure because I've, I've been in those talks, and what it did for me is it did motivate me for a season to pray more, but, but the motivation was more based on shame than anything else. I felt like I was a disappointment that I wasn't doing it more, and so I was motivated and driven to do it. However, hear me, the beauty of Christianity is that our motivation is never meant to be shame or fear. Our motivation is love, that we are loved, first loved by him, and that our response to his love is to love in return. And so my goal is not to beat anyone up or push and drive you, motivate you with shame or whatever else. It's, it's just simply to remind you for the next few minutes of the simplicity, the privilege, the power of prayer. And I want to leave you encouraged by the goodness of God and encouraged for sure to spend time speaking to God because of that. Jesus will address prayer and, and he'll teach his disciples to pray. You, it's a familiar passage, but you can flip there. It's in Matthew 6. So Matthew 6, if you want to flip there, is where you can go. You know, one of my favorite things uh, right now in my own life with my kids, because we've got three little ones, one of my favorite things, it's, it's listening to them sing and dance, the girls especially. It's, it's talking baseball with Keegan and Riley. I love it. But I love when they pray. Um, Declan at the table each night, she typically prays and sings for us. She'll sing uh, God Our Father, and it's like the cutest little thing. Uh, she gives thanks for our food. I remember when Riley was younger, I have to make sure she can't hear me. When she was younger, I remember once at dinner we said, uh, or it was at bed, we said, Ry, do you want to pray? And she said, yeah, and she gets quiet. And before she says anything, it's a long pause, and Lindsay and I kind of look at each other, and she looks up at us and goes, I peed the bath. And then it's just this weird pause, and then she put her head back down and started to pray. It's like she had to get it off her chest <laughs> before uh, approaching God. Keegan, Keegan, when he was younger, he did a lot of speech therapy, and so it was a lot of gibberish in the life of Keegan, especially when he got excited. And I remember once he sat down at the dinner table, and he was going to pray. And we couldn't understand a word he said except for Yoda. It somehow worked its way in there. So when he finished, I said, Keegan, thank you for praying. Did you say Yoda? And he goes, yeah, I pray to the green guy. <laughs> we thought, oh, man. <laughs> I bring that up because one of the things that I think is, is just the, one of the coolest aspects about the idea, the concept, the gift of prayer is that it's profoundly simple. It's easy enough for a child to understand and to participate in, and yet it's complex enough for us who are mature and as we grow older to still be an absolute wonder of. So simple, my kids can jump in and do it but so complex, so overwhelming that it still leaves you and I in wonder. 
that God's available to me all the time with all his resources, with all his comfort. He's always just a prayer away. I don't think we should overcomplicate this. It's, it, prayer is simply talking to God. It's talking to him as if he's in the room right next to you. It's really talking to him believing he is, not as if he is. It's believing that he is in the room sitting there with you. I mean, do you remember what it was like when you first learned about God's deep care for you and that he wanted to hear from you, that the creator of the universe was seeking an audience with you? Do you remember what that was first like? When those things first sunk in, it felt too good to be true for me. And and I can't speak for you, but for me, I don't know how or why it seems to happen, but it's happened in my life over the years several different times where prayer shifts from that privilege and feels more like a duty, or it shifts from a blessing and begins to feel like an obligation, or, or from a joy and it begins to feel more like a chore in my life. I lose somehow, I don't know why it is, but I lose the sense of wonder that I once had that God who loves me invites me to speak with him. The sense of wonder that, that I can, regardless of where I am, be in his presence and know that he hears me. Regardless of how big a problem is, always have confidence that he's more wise and, and, and bigger and stronger and more complex than even the problem seems to be. Regardless of how small the request may feel, I know that he cares, that I can have confidence that regardless of how I feel or what I think, that I can be honest with him all the time. Regardless of what I've done or how big a mess I've made, that I have confidence that I haven't exhausted his grace or patience yet and that I won't. Sometimes I lose that sense of wonder at the invitation God gives us to pray, to speak to him, to know him, to be, to be known by him. Uh, Timothy Keller wrote, a, I think, a really great book on prayer. And here's what he said. He said, to fail to pray is not to merely break some religious rule. It is a failure to treat God as God. Prayer is simply a recognition of the greatness of God. I believe that prayer is first and foremost, it's meant to be an act or an expression of love that my prayers are born out of my desire to be with Jesus. And prayer is not just a way that you can spend your time. Prayer is meant to be viewed, I think, as a way that you could invest your time. And there's a huge difference between spending and investing. Think of money. We know the difference between spending money and investing money. One comes with an expectation of a payoff, a looming benefit or byproduct. And prayer is an investment for the follower of Jesus. And for a follower of Jesus, it is an incredible privilege, prayer is. It's a great privilege because it hasn't always been this way. For centuries, people have longed to have the access and favor with God that you have. Because people have not always been able to at any time boldly enter the presence of God and pour out their hearts to him. For centuries, the common man was separated from God's presence, where God's spirit it dwelt in the temple, and, and I would be separated from God's spirit by three different veils, three different panels of separation. One person once a year would enter into God's presence with fear and trembling. Think back to even people like Jonah, who when he repents, it says, then I turn toward the temple of God. That was the, the place that they turned their bodies even geographically towards, to face towards it, recognizing that God, that is where you are. And and, and for them, they believed not just that their voice would echo over the hills and reach it, but they believed as they pointed their head and heart that way, that it was their way of connecting with God. But they didn't have the access and favor with God that you and I have today. 
And what shifted is what Jesus did for us, where God comes in the form of a man and suffers and dies in my place. And when Jesus would breathe his last on a cross, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom because God's spirit burst forth from the temple, no longer to be separated from sinful men because of Jesus. God can now freely be accessed by you and me, forgiven men and women. It's an amazing privilege that not everyone has always had the access and favor with God that you and I have. I, I used to have the, the awesome opportunity and privilege of taking people every year to Israel. And I loved, uh, one of the places I really loved to take people was to the Western Wailing Wall. You're at the base of the Temple Mount and, and you see it, even today, you see it on the news often where they're giving updates from the Wailing Wall. It's, it's the closest place geographically to where the temple once stood. And the temple sat on top of that hillside, and that's where the presence of God once was. And so people still today, in 2021, they travel from all over the world in hopes of meeting with God. The idea is, I just want to be close to God, and if that's where God's presence was, His Spirit was, then I want, I want to get as close to the Spirit's presence as I geographically can, and I want to experience God. I, I, want, I want to know with confidence that God will hear my prayers. Now, ironically, that wall, the Western Wailing Wall, is actually just a retaining wall. It wasn't like a part of the temple itself. And it was even built by Herod the Great, who the Jews despised and hated. He's the one who erected it. And now it's a, a holy and sacred place in many people's minds. And, and every crack and, and, and nook along that rocky uh, slope there, there's little tiny prayers that people will fold up on pieces of papers and slide into the rocks there because they want their prayers to get as close as they can to where the presence of God once dwelt. Think about it. People from all over the world come and place those little prayers just because they want them to be near to God and heard by God. Every time I would take people there, every time I would go there, I would leave just amazed. Amazed at the thought that God no longer dwells in a temple made with hands. Nor is he relegated to a single place that we need to go to experience him. I always leave thinking about the mystery that Paul wrote to the church of Colossae. When he says, there's this mystery that's been hidden from the ages that I don't want you ignorant of, and this mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery is that Christ is now in you. The amazing thing, the reason that we have access and favor to God is because Christ is now in us, and the reason Christ can be in us is because he first suffered and died for us. He's no longer in a temple that I don't need to go there to be close to him, that I can sit right here or in the comfort of my car on my morning commute, uh, which for many of us, it's COVID. Our commute is the, the walk to the back office or whatever it may be. But from your commute, you can meet with him and know that you're near him and that he's for you. And the reason that's possible, this is why it's such a great privilege the reason that it's possible for Christ to be in you is because Christ suffered and died for you. You see, sometimes I forget what a special privilege I have today and, and, and the access and favor I have with God, the confidence I have that I please God because of Jesus, that I can connect with God in a moment's notice and be heard by him at any time. It's a special and powerful privilege because of what it costs God to give me that privilege. It cost him the life of his son. Listen, a part of the time that we set aside to be with the Father like Jesus did, when we do that, we need to remember that prayer is not our opportunity to talk nice, to talk nice to God. It's being honest with yourself and with God. 
You see, for many of us, it's very possible that we don't often slow down enough even to know what or how we feel, much less to have the ability and capacity to express that to God. The unfortunate thing is I think in some circles we can run in, we can even label that as, as being called spiritually mature, that, that we're so busy that we don't slow down to know what we think or feel or how we're actually doing, that, that we don't even know it ourselves, much less have the capacity to express it to God. I think it's silly when you slow down to think about it, though, that sometimes we seem so hesitant to be honest with God when he's God after all and already knows. He already knows what we need. He already knows how we feel. He already knows those areas of tension or disappointment or hurt. Even though we know he already knows, we're so slow and hesitant to bring those things to him. And I'll just tell you in my life, what I've learned is that sometimes I think it's because I'm afraid of voicing, I'm afraid of hearing, of knowing how I really feel. Maybe in moments of feeling lonely or lost or overwhelmed or disappointed or hopeless. I'm afraid to voice those things because those are isolating things. But I've learned that I can't be afraid of voicing those things, taking those things to God, because when I take those things, those sad places or emotions, and, and I, walk, I walk with confidence knowing that he enters those places with me, that when I pray, it's me bringing him into those ugly or hard places in life, that so much of the time I don't even want to enter into myself, but me recognizing, God, here's where I'm at today, is bringing him into those. I'm inviting him into those spaces and experiences. I think of it this way, that I'm to pray as if I'm answering God's original question in the garden, and the original question he asked humanity in the garden is, where are you? Remember, it's what he asked of Adam. Where are you? My prayers are the continuation of the conversation God started in the garden. My prayers leave me with the same choice the first humans faced as they responded to that question. And the, the choice that they had was either cover up or be exposed, either hide or be exposed. I've learned that although Jesus, he broke the power and penalty uh, of my sin nature at the cross, what I have to do is that I have to, to break the destructive pattern that still exists in me that started in Eden. And that destructive pattern is, is my response to that question of hide or be exposed. You see, you and I, like they did in the Garden of Eden, we have to take off our metaphorical fig leaves and then let Christ's power and grace be our even better covering for our hurt and our brokenness. Because I would argue he can't cover you until you or I allow ourselves to truly be exposed. We come in to our relationship with him with vulnerability and brokenness. When we do that, then he covers us. You see, we're really great at pretending and, and faking it so well with other people. And I'd argue sometimes we even pretend, even with ourselves, that we've got it all together. But our time with God should stand in such stark contrast to that. That, that tendency to have ourselves come across as polished or professional or in control and always got a plan. We don't have to come with those sorts of pretentious uh, kind of stances or attitudes. No, I, I don't just pretend and have a facade on with others. I have a tendency to do that with myself because I'm afraid of how it might impact or rattle me personally to be honest about my own flaws or my own insecurities or my own lack of control with, with my life or the world or my family. But my time with God should be so honest and raw 
that sometimes it might look messy even in moments because of how raw and honest I am with him. You see, you and I have a choice. We can let God be our rock and shelter, or we can continue trying to be it for ourselves. But it requires that we quit. If he's going to do it, then we have to quit trying to do that for ourselves. We have to be humble and honest with ourselves and run to God in humility and honesty. I've learned over time that the price of admittance into greater intimacy with God is humility and brokenness. And I hate that. I wish it was anything but that. (laughs) But you know, it's the same in relationships we have with other people. The cost of developing a a great bond with someone uh, means you have to allow them to see who you really are. In a marriage, you grow intimacy and connection through humility and brokenness, letting someone see every area and aspect of who you are. Our fear is that if people really knew us, they wouldn't love us. But if they love us and don't know us, it's shallow. But the love that God has for us is that we are completely known by him and yet fully loved by him. And because of that, we ought to walk boldly to the throne of grace where we know we obtain mercy and grace to help us in our time of need, even when we come in completely broken down. Listen, God invites us into intimacy with him. Think about how wild this is. That Jesus comes and address God as his father when he prayed, but then he even instructs his disciples to do the same. That was provocative and shocking. It was unheard of and unthinkable. Even today, there is not another, another religious group in the world in 2021 that addresses their God as father. No religious group other than followers of Jesus even, even pretend to have that kind of intimate, affectionate connection with their God. Remember, Jesus gave instruction to his disciples about how they should pray and who they would send their requests to. This is Matthew 6, where I had you turn, where Jesus taught them to pray. And he gives them some disclaimers about what they are or not to do. And then he tells them, when you pray, Matthew 6, verse 9, pray our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Think about where he told them to address their prayers to. Our father who's in heaven and whose name is holy. You're addressing every time you stop to pray as a father of Jesus, you're, you're stopping to address someone who calls himself your father. Now, I have an earthly father, and though imperfect he may be, my earthly father always had the desire to meet our needs. Now, he had limited resources in different seasons for sure. There was five kids, and we were a struggling church planting family, and, and so there was a stretch of time of, of quite a while where every week we would go to a food bank, and as a kid, I thought it was just because we were volunteering there. I, it never dawned on me that we also took two boxes of food home at the end of volunteering there, but but we did what we could. My dad always had the desire to meet our needs, but sometimes he lacked the resources to meet our needs. Think how different this is, though. Our Father who is in heaven, whose name is holy. Holy in the simplest of terms means categorically separate or different, that he's high above or set apart, that he doesn't have the limitations that we have. You're addressing someone who has the heart of a father who's always willing to meet your needs, but he's also simultaneously a holy God, high above, categorically different, who's able to meet your needs. 
That as a follower of Jesus, every time I pause to pray, my Father in heaven, Father in heaven is reminding me a holy God, a Father who's willing to meet my needs, but also who's able to meet my needs. That that is who I'm turning to. That's who I'm taking my needs to, the one who is unlike anyone else in the universe. You know, it's funny, I, I grew up with a family. They had resources that our family did not. I remember as a young person growing up and thinking, gosh, it must be nice to be in that family and, and thinking it must, it must be nice to just feel at ease. Their kids had credit cards with their parents' name on it, that kind of thing. And they're wonderful, godly, awesome people. But I remember being jealous at times going, I wish that I had that kind of security that came from knowing that I had someone who loved me like their parents loved them and have that kind of resources. I remember one time me thinking about that family as a young person in my early 20s and going, thinking like, oh man, it must be nice for, for them to have that kind of a safety net, that kind of confidence that comes from knowing you've got someone who loves you like that and has that kind of resources. And I felt like God just stopped me in the moment and shook me a bit and just said, what makes you think her dad will do a better job caring for her than I would caring for you? What makes you think that he has more resources than I do? What makes you think that there's more peace in her heart because of the kind of resources her dad can provide than the peace that you could have in your heart because of the commitment I have for you and the kind of resources I have. I think there's a powerful truth and reality here that Jesus is trying to teach us in, in the simplest uh, of statements when he just says, when you pray, pray this way. Pray with a reminder that this is who is available to you, that this is who loves you and, and will provide for you. For Jesus to come along and address God as a father and then to do more than just invite you to do the same, he would instead instruct us, his followers, to do the same thing. It was radically revolutionary and gives a radical revelation, I think, of the very heart of God and the nature of our relational connection to him, what it should look like. Listen, if God really cares for me as much as this book tells me that he does, then I shouldn't be hesitant to take any and every need to him. I love how Peter wrote it in 1 Peter 5, 7. He says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares about what happens to you. The truth is sometimes though, I think our, our connection to God, our approach to him can be pretty shallow because we can think of prayer as just our means uh, of getting my will done in heaven where in reality, prayer is God's means of aligning my heart and my priorities with his so that his will then will be accomplished through my life here on earth. I mean, I wonder sometimes if in heaven one day we'll have the opportunity to like on some jumbotron screen to get to see like the impact of our prayers, to see the impact that our prayers made in the world or, or even the impact that our prayers made in an individual's life. I wonder if we'll be able to look back and go, wow, crazy that God, you gave us the opportunity to partner with you and look at what my prayers did by opening a door for you to come and do things in people's lives or in the world. Or I wonder... If God answered all of my prayers in just the last seven days, would anything change in the world or just in my world? If in the last 30 days even, if God answered all of my prayers in the last 30 days, would anything change in the world or just things changing in my world? You see, for me, I've learned I'm a very selfish person, uh, when I have a selfless thought, I take it as the voice of God speaking to me, his still small voice. When I, because I'm a selfish person, when I, when I think of someone else or their needs and wonder how they're doing, 
I take the time to stop and pray because I'm assuming that that is the voice of God because if I'm selfish, then my natural bent and inclination is going to be to think about myself. And so when I think of others, I take it as God leading me, God leading me to reach out to them, which if you've known me for long, you'll probably get the rando text message that says, hey, how's it going? I'm just thinking or just thought of you and just wanted to check in. But I always stop and pray for those people because I believe that God gives us the amazing ability to partner with him. And I think our prayer life should, should probably be a balance of a few things. Kind of like maybe you could compare it to your relationship with someone else. If you have a significant other or you're married, that, that you should have scheduled times to pray, but also an ongoing dialogue of prayer. For me and my wife, our relationship is not just like we have these scheduled times of check-in, like at the beginning of the day, the end of day, when we give the business update of here's what my day looked like or here's what my day tomorrow will look like. How about your day? Let's make sure our schedules jive. We don't just do that. We throughout the day are checking in and, and there's text messages happening. There's dialogue taking place. In the same way for me, I've got scheduled time in the morning to sit and to pray and, and I've got scheduled time at meals to just give thanks and evenings with my wife, which we've done not as good a job lately, actually, if we're being honest, than we have in other seasons. But of, in the evenings of taking time together to pray, I'm looking her direction and she gave me the little head nod. Um, but we have those sorts of things. But then, then throughout the day, we check in in, this, in the same way, prayer. I think in scripture, it makes the comment that you should pray without ceasing in First Thessalonians. That doesn't mean that you should walk around talking to God and you, you get to the checkout aisle at the grocery store or something and they're asking you how your day is and you're like in between comments to them, like my day's okay that you're still talking to God and then talking to them. And I don't know that it looks that way. I, I think that the idea is that it would be so second nature to take things to God that it almost feels like breathing, that, that, that when you hear of a tragedy, that, that your response is, oh Lord, have mercy. That when you see an ambulance fly by, that that's the response you have is to take the need to God in prayer. When you feel anxiety all of a sudden kick in, that you pause for a moment and say, God, I want to give this situation to you and I trust you. When, when you see an opportunity uh, open, you say, God, what do you want me to do in this situation? I think of Nehemiah. I love the story of Nehemiah where there's that one little moment at the start where God puts a burden in his heart and the king comes and says, well, what do you want to do? And it says, and I prayed to the God in heaven and answered the king. He prayed to the God of heaven in his heart and then he interacted with the king physically. I think that that's the rhythm of our life, that our prayer life should look like a balance of those two things, of, of us having scheduled times that we'd set aside to be with God and then an ongoing dialogue with him throughout the day. But also a third thing, I think that a part of it should also be listening. That when we get alone to be with God, that a part of that is we sit and listen. And maybe you've thought this before, well, why would I even pray though? I mean, if God knows everything, why tell him what I need if he already knows? Why tell him how I feel if he's already aware of that? Well, because he's a father. He's a father that wants to hear from and care for his children. My kids are six, well, eight, six, and four now. And uh, specifically with the oldest, Riley, um, she's at the age where she really resists my help. And so for me, I, it, unless she solicits my help, I've had to learn that she really doesn't want anything to do with my help unless she gets to the point where she's frustrated and realizes that she needs my help. And I love her and I, I want to help her in all sorts of ways with her homework or, or stuff around the house or she's working on a puzzle, whatever it may be. I want to help her. I really do. But I've learned that she's resistant to it until I'll let her feel the need to ask for help. And as soon as she does, then I can sit with her and, and I can help her and partner with her and love on her. 
I've had to learn to wait for her to ask, to open the door for me to come and to give the kind of help and support that I'd love to give. Now think of this. Jesus in the Gospels asks people again and again, what do you want me to do for you? He asked that to a lame guy who's brought before him and laid there. In front of everyone, Jesus says, well, what would you like me to do for you? It almost feels like rude, like it almost feels sarcastic. Like, well, what do you, what do you mean? I mean, if the guy responds, he's looking around, what do you think I need you to do for me? Two of my friends just lowered me in here because I can't walk and everybody's looking at me because they see that I'm the only one in the room laying down. It's, it's a blind man that's brought before Jesus who's been yelling out, have mercy on me, son of David. And Jesus brings him before him and says, what would you like me to do for you? Well, clearly, we all know. God wanted them to ask. So the door is open for him to answer which I think when he does that, when he waits for us to ask so that he can answer, it causes our faith and trust in him to grow. And that's what he's after, is intimacy. You see, my prayers are not for the purpose of simply informing God of my situation. He's God, he already knows my needs before I ask him. But my prayers open a door to God. I don't think prayer twists God's arm. If that's the imagery that you have in your head is that prayer twists God's arm to get him to comply. I don't think it twists his arm. I think it opens a door for God to come in and do the things He's been desiring to do, but wouldn't do before in violation of my free will. If that was too Dr. Seuss, I'll say it again. (laughs) Prayer opens a door for God to come and do the things he's been desiring to do, but wouldn't do before in violation of my free will. He's waiting for me to say, you know, God, I'm ready and I need this. And when I open the door, I believe that God responds. I am inviting my heavenly father then into my, my fears, my dreams, my aspirations, my family, my workplace, my worries. You see, sometimes I forget why God even wants me to pray, and and I should pray because it gives me the perspective that I need. Again, Keller, he says it this way, prayer is the only entryway into self-knowledge. It also is the main way we experience deep change, the reordering of our loves. Prayer reminds me that God is there and that he cares and that he's capable, that I'm not alone. It's Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, give thanks to God And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. It's promise there is not. God's promise is not an explanation for the things that are overwhelming us or causing us anxiety. It's not even a change of the circumstances. He he doesn't promise that either. What he does promise, though, is that there's an experience of peace that that, that, that we can grab onto. You see, prayer is the expression of trust that paves the way for that experience. Prayer is the expression of trust that paves the way for the experience of peace. I really believe that. Listen, why he wants us to pray is because, well, I should pray because it does something. And, and this is where we'll, we'll quickly wrap up. I should pray because it does something. Remember Elijah, he has the servant, and, or it's actually Elisha and his servant, and Elisha's servant's overwhelmed. Like, there's a whole bunch of bad guys who are here for us, basically. And, And so Elisha prays for him. He goes out and looks on the hillside and realizes there's more for us. God opens his spiritual eyes to see the angels that have come to protect them. There is more for us than there are on their side. He all of a sudden could see what was happening. And I wish that we could see, but but we forget and, and we don't get to see in the spiritual realm what really is happening that we're often unaware of. But scripture has those moments in time where it opens the veil and lets us see what's happening in the spiritual realm when we pray. It's something that happens in Acts 12 that many believe actually happened in John Mark's home. Remember the guy who writes this gospel. 
It's in Acts 12 where they're praying because Peter's in prison and they're assuming he's on death row because John the Baptist has just lost his life and they're afraid Peter is going to be next. And the church prayed for him. And when they prayed, an angel arrived in his cell and woke him up and removed his chains and opened the gate and led him to freedom. And it's been wisely said that though an angel fetched Peter, a prayer fetched that angel. You get a view all of a sudden into what God does. There's there's powerful activity that happens when we pray. It's not just things hitting the ceiling. No, it's things shaking heaven and heaven responding. It's in the Old Testament. It's it's Daniel praying when he's overwhelmed and God sends in response to that prayer a, a messenger angel to give Daniel clarity and understanding of what's taking place. It's Hezekiah praying in Isaiah, I think it's 38, where as he prays saying, God, there's an army coming for your people, but these are your people. This is your problem. You need a solution because I don't have one. God sent a military angel to come and defend the people. It's Jesus praying in Mark 1 as he's alone and being tempted. And when he prays, ministering angels come to support him. That's what's happening when we pray that we often lose sight of because we're not seeing it. You and I ought to pray because it actually does something. And prayer's greatest work is both internal and it's external. Whereas for us, so much of the time, we feel disappointed when we're not seeing the external byproduct of our prayer that we are hoping for. We need to guard our hearts from the messy mistake of seeing prayer as merely a way of getting things from God and completely overlooking the fact that prayer is our means of getting God himself, of being connected to him. You see, sometimes I'm disappointed or disheartened when I don't see the immediate impact or, or, or the immediate effect of my prayers. But remember, even Jesus' prayers were not answered in the way or when he had hoped. In Gethsemane, three times he prayed, and then he chose to trust anyways. Listen, unfortunately, God doesn't work on my timetable. Fortunately for me, he has his reasons for not working on my timetable. He's far more wise than I am, and he has reasons for, for not responding uh, to all of my prayers the way that I had hoped. It's a good thing that he didn't answer all of my prayers. If he had answered all of my prayers, if we're being honest, most of us would be married to someone we probably should have never been married to. If we had siblings, they probably would have died in freak accidents. Like there are terrible things that would have happened in moments where we had prayed, but God doesn't always respond the way we had hoped. So Richard Trench, I read this years ago and loved it. He had a quote. He was the Archbishop of Dublin. He said this. He said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. Remember, not twisting his arm, it's opening a door. Opening a door for him to come and do things he's desired to do, but waited to do because he didn't want to do them in violation of my free will. It's been wisely said that God's delays are not the delays of inactivity, they're delays of preparation. But when I feel as though God is delayed, I lose heart and assume it's because he's disinterested. And it's not the case. Listen, please, please don't give up on praying because it's our responsibility to pray. Moses prayed and think of the mercy that God showed because of it. Abraham prayed and think of the mercy that God showed because of it towards Lot and his family. But then there was Ezekiel, who God said this. He said, so I sought for a man among them who would stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Therefore, I've poured out my indignation on them and I've consumed them. God was willing to extend a hand of mercy, but no one would ask. James says, you have not because you ask not. James also said the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. My friends, pray. Take God at his offer, this beautiful, incredible offer to connect with him, the creator of the universe, to connect with him this week. 
knowing with confidence that you please him, that you pray our Father in heaven, a, a God who is wanting, a Father who's wanting to meet your needs, but also who's capable of meeting those needs. My mom was in town this last week, and it's funny, Keegan was asking if I'd ever been to jail or chased by the police, and um, I know, your kids, I don't know what, what started it. I do look like a hardened criminal, so I get it. But I told him one time, and I, I fact-checked this with my mom, I told him one time I'd been chased by the police. I was five years old. It's one of my earliest memories, honestly. Uh, we had a wooded area behind our house and I took off into it with a friend, which I was allowed to do, but what was a bad move was when my parents started calling for me, I didn't come. And that was because my friend and I, when we were just five, we found a bucket of paint in the woods and we used that bucket of paint then to paint a fallen uh, tree and we did a wonderful job, we thought, until my older brother found us and saw that we were covered in paint. And so his response was just to tell us, you're gonna be in big trouble. You're in big trouble. When dad sees you, he's gonna be so mad. And I was terrified, and so I hid. And then the police showed up. So then I had more reason to hide. And my little five-year-old brain, I was thinking, I've seen cops before. I've seen that show. I know what happens next. This is not going to end well for me and Johnny Pasco, our little neighborhood kid. <laughs> True story, a helicopter was called. The whole search party ensued. It was probably hours that I remained hidden. All because of shame. That's what it was. I was so afraid of what my brother had said. Just wait till dad sees you. He's going to be so disappointed. Shame drove me to forget everything I knew to be true about my father. When my parents finally did find me, they quickly, or they quickly grabbed me, embraced me, reaffirmed me, were able to wipe the, the paint off me, uh, were able to wash the clothes. Everything was fine. I was welcomed home. Everything I feared would happen didn't happen. What I knew would happen, I'd lost sight of, though. There's this ugly thing that exists in all of us. There's a good, a good thing. It's conviction. Conviction leads us to our knees to approach God with humility and say, God, I need you because I'm broken. Condemnation's the ugly thing that exists in us that drives us from him, that causes us, shame does, to forget everything we know to be true about our Father. If we're honest, the thing that keeps us from praying as followers of Jesus more than anything else is not forgetfulness. It's typically shame. It's that we feel condemned. It's that we beat ourselves up and say, once I put myself on spiritual timeout and earn some favor back, then I'll approach him. Shame has a way of causing us to forget everything we know to be true about our father and causes us to hide from him. My friends, don't let that be true of you this week. Jesus hung on a cross and said, it's finished, because he took everything that stood between you and the Father and removed it. And so enjoy this week the amazing opportunity you have to spend time with him in Jesus' name.